This episode of Primitive Culture is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and to help Trek FM at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international programme of the non-profit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. And if you want to join the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode, join the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field. We look forward to seeing you there. This is Tim Russ, Lieutenant Commander Tuvok on Star Trek Voyager, and you're listening to Trek FM. Open your mind to the past. All this may mean something. I've been coerced into watching tonight's movie. You do have books in the 24th century. It's the primitive culture. I'm just trying to blend in. Some people think the future means the end of history. They haven't run out of history quite yet. Hello and welcome to Primitive Culture, a Trek FM podcast all about our history, our culture and how Star Trek relates to it. I'm Duncan Barrett and joining me today I have another wonderful guest from across the network. It's Brandon Shea-Metalla. Hi Brandon, how are you? I'm doing wonderful and I'm really happy to be here. But oh man, your room, it's such a disaster, it's such a mess, but I love it. I want to buy that room and just fix it up. <laughs> yeah, well, it could take a bit of work. Although you never know, you might get, uh, if, if you have a bit of magic help fixing my room up, that could definitely, that could definitely help. I could do with a, a haunted room that cleans itself, I think. <laughs> what about you? Your, yours looks pretty tidy. You've obviously been working on yours. Yes, mine is, uh, mine's definitely clean. And that's because I have a very controlling mother who keeps my house very nice. <laughs> well, there you go. Well, listeners, I think if, if anyone's guessed the subject of this podcast from that cryptic exchange, then, you know, they deserve a prize, probably. But um, <laughs> what what Brandon's coming on the show today to talk about is a film that I have to say I'd never even heard of till, until Brandon brought it to me. I know. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <sighs> I hold my hands up. But, you know, that's the great thing about having guests on Primitive Culture is I, I get to learn about new stuff. And this is the, the John Carpenter film, 1983 film, Christine, which inspired the Voyager episode. Alice. Now I have to say I've spoken to a few people this week and, and mentioned I was doing this podcast and they were like, Alice, what's you know, what's that? You know, I've seen Voyager, I don't even remember the Voyager episode. But maybe Brandon, you could um since you were the one who who brought this idea to me, you could sort of kick off by just giving the listeners a little bit of an intro to broadly speaking what this film and of course the book that it was inspired by are about and how that ties into the Voyager episode. Well, it's so Christine is a Stephen King novel uh that came out in the early eighties and you know, I've always loved the book. I've read, I've read it once before and I read, but it's been a long time since I read it. I read it 20 some years ago. And basically what it is, is this, this young, it's about young teenage boys, you know, this love triangle between a boy, his car and his girlfriend. And this guy falls in love with this car. He wants to buy it. And it turns out that kind of the car is haunted. Um, there's a little bit more to that in the novel. And the book, uh, the, was translated into film by John Carpenter, who is one of the greats in, in cinema. And, you know, he specializes in horror films. And, you know, on Twitter, his handle is the horror master. And, you know, it is one of those underrated films. And, and I've always loved the movie and I've seen the movie way more than I've seen the book. And recently, you know, I guess it's not so recent anymore. But it, back in 2016, when we did our Trek FM rewatch and I got to Alice again, I'm like, holy smokes, this is just Christine in 45 minutes is what this is. With a new paint job, basically. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I, I watched Christine again with my wife after that. And I'm like, I totally want to get on a podcast on the network and talk about this, you know, just because I love Christine so much. I'm not that big of a fan of Alice itself. You know, like I like Voyager and I, I talk about Voyager quite a bit. It's not my favorite Trek series, but uh, I just, I, I find it fun to talk about cinema because I, I really love watching movies, but I find it fun to talk about the cinema that has influenced episodes of Star Trek over on, on Warp 5, which is my Star Trek Enterprise podcast. We're doing a couple of different things. Um, I've, I've watched a couple of movies that have inspired episodes. I did an episode uh, with John Tenuto on Enemy Mine. 
and how that's very similar to the episode Dawn from Enterprise. And then we also had some guests on. We talked about the Magnificent Seven in the episode Marauders because those are very similar. And so this, this is an extension of the type of things that I like to discuss on the network you know, when the, when it comes to Star Trek. So, um, yeah, in a nutshell, that's basically it. Yeah. It's absolutely right up our alley as well, right up our, our dark, seedy back alley with a, a sinister car <laughs> creeping down. That's what, one of the scenes I did really like in the film, which I can't remember how it, whether it plays out slightly differently in the novel, because there are a few things that were changed to make them sort of more cinematic or more dramatic or whatever. Is this basically sort of homicidal car, you know, spoilers if you're going to go and watch this film, you probably work this out by looking at the box. The car starts killing people and there's one scene where this guy is running away from the car and it gets down. He runs down what seems like a kind of narrow enough alleyway that the car won't be able to fit. But because this car is so deranged and evil, it just crunches itself to bits to kind of get down there and smash him to pieces and then sort of reverses out in a complete wreck. And through the kind of evil magic that it's possessed with, the car is able to sort of heal itself. So one of the things I think works really well in the film is that you get these scenes of the kind of crumpled, damaged car sort of uncrumpling itself in a sense, like kind of regenerating itself. The only thing I'd say though is what I felt was not clear from the film. I mean, I think it's just one of, it's quite a big book, the Stephen King book. It's like a 500 odd page book and the film is like a, you know, reasonably tight kind of horror film. In the book, it's much clearer, I think, that the car is kind of feeding off Arnie, the guy who's bought it, this kind of slightly hopeless teenager who he buys this car and at one level it kind of it changes him it gives him this kind of sort of machismo almost it makes him popular it clears up his acne it makes him a kind of a cool guy basically but at the same time it's also draining him it's making him age it's kind of you know which is partly there's this kind of suggestion that it's turning him into the car's previous owner or that they're kind of uh, their personalities are, are kind of merging in some way, but also the sense that it's almost like a kind of succubus draining him. And you do get that, I guess, in the Voyager episode, certainly towards the end where, you, you know, Paris is, he's stubbly, he's looking tired, he's got those things, almost like Borg kind of things, sticking into him and kind of somehow draining him. Everyone seems to be saying, you know, you need to go to bed, you need to sleep, you're kind of, you know, this is having an impact on you. So I guess some of that is uh, is there in the Voyager episode. And, and I think you're right. I mean, certainly if you... If you have seen the film, Christine, or even read the book, watching that Voyager episode, it's kind of inescapable. And, and actually, I was, it's interesting. I was, I was looking into some of the kind of background behind the writing of this episode. It was a freelance pitch, I think, but it was written by, the teleplay was by Brian Fuller and Michael Taylor. And they, uh, but both Brian Fuller and Kenneth Biller later said that they were quite disappointed by it. And I think it's, it's not a, great Star Trek episode by any stretch of the imagination. But I was quite interested what what Brian Fuller said. He said it was his least favourite episode that season. But he said, we did too direct of a translation. And basically he felt that they hadn't, rather than allowing the Stephen King story or the John Carpenter film to kind of inspire them to do something original, they kind of just lifted it and translated it across. And in many ways, you know, something that works for Stephen King or something that works for John Carpenter isn't necessarily going to work for Voyager. And really, it would have been better if they'd been a bit more creative with that story, really, rather than just kind of copying A to B. And it is true, certainly in the Voyager, you know, there are lots of like even directly lifted scenes. So, for example, there's a scene where the guy who's bought the car is supposed to be going out with his friends to the cinema and he lets him down. And in the Voyager episode, we have a scene where the same thing happens with Tom and Harry. They're meant to be going on the holodeck. Um Paris makes a little joke about someone wiping the odometer back on the shuttle that he's that he's got hold of, which is literally what happens in the book and the film. It starts rolling backwards. And then there's even a kind of visual reference to the film, I think, because in the scene where Bellana gets suffocated within the shuttle, it's it's not just that this is similar to something that happens in the book where the character Arnie's girlfriend, Lee, uh, starts choking on a burger i think she she starts choking on whatever she's eating but in the film of christine there's literally almost the exact same shot that we see of balana in the voyager episode where she's inside the car he's outside she's got her hand up to the glass and she's kind of you know silently desperately you know unable to breathe and so they even went so far i think into in terms of like the way that scene was directed of kind of borrowing that visual in a way so it's kind of almost inescapable if, you, if you're familiar with that story although it isn't explicitly acknowledged anywhere on screen you kind of can't get away from it and I, I wonder whether do you think that's part of the reason that that Voyager episode doesn't work so well that it's too indebted to Christine 
See, that that's interesting because that's what works for me in this episode is that it is so similar to the film. And I, I kind of like seeing those episodes that are inspired by film. So while I don't think the episode that self is very memorable or great, what I do like about it is the fact that it is a callback to this film, Christine, which is such a classic. And it is a great translation to Voyager because Tom Paris is the perfect character for this story. You know, he's got the relationship with Bellani. He's the guy that loves cars. He's the guy that loves that retro stuff. It's a great translation. And I'm surprised somebody didn't come up with it sooner in it, you know? So it just, it seems to work for me. And the episode is more of an adaptation of the film than the book. Because like when you get into the book, you know, I don't quite understand in the novel what the the origin is of the the hauntedness of the car, right? Because in the movie, it's clear that this car is haunted from the get-go, right? So there, there's something wrong with this car. It's haunted right at the beginning, coming off the assembly line. It The hood smashes on that guy's hand and somebody dies inside the car on the assembly line. Where in the book, that's not the case. In the book, the car is not haunted. The car becomes haunted with the previous owner's soul. And it's the previous owner that's using Arnie as a way to, you know, live again and live with this car again. And as he got old, the car got old. And so now that Arnie's young again, he's, he's rejuvenating himself. So, so it, in the book, it's clear that it's, it's Raleigh LeBay. That's the, that's the haunt where in the movie it's clear that it's the car. And in the episode, it's the space shuttle in that there's some type of artificial intelligence in it that's, you know, working with Tom. But what I like about the the episode, though, is the the fact that Tom is kind of, like, connected to this even when he's not, and they'll have, like... E- the camera moving and you'll you'll see that tom's not talking to anybody and then the camera will spin around and then all of a sudden there's this female representation of the spaceship that he's talking directly to and it's like he's talking to a person and you know again in the book there's scenes where a couple of scenes where arnie's in the car with the ghost of raleigh LeBay and they're communicating and whatnot so you know there's so there's there's a little bit of everything that's been pulled together in this episode which which is fun it's 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 fun it does. I mean, you're right. The the book. I mean, it's interesting looking into this. I, I have to. I really enjoyed the book, and I really enjoyed the film as well. For for me, I found the book more effective because I felt that it was actually quite scary. Whereas I felt like the film, albeit a horror film, it didn't. I think there was a real. I think there's a real challenge of making a car scary as a kind of villain, and in a way, Stephen King for me is able to manage that through harnessing the reader's imagination in a way that. John Carpenter, brilliant director as he was, you know, he he himself actually said, uh, I found it quite, he said, I enjoyed working with the actors on this film, but I spent too much time with that damned car and it was difficult to make it frightening. Uh, and he said, you know, at least in Duel they had a truck, but all I had was this, you know, rather snazzy looking 1950s car. And so I, I suppose that's that's one element of it that for me, the, the book kind of worked better than the film. I, I know a lot of people feel the other way around. I mean, a lot of people hated this book. They thought it was a complete mess. Apparently Stephen King was high on drugs most of the time he was writing it and there are a lot of things in the book that arguably don't quite go anywhere the structure is a bit ramshackle and questions like that you know where where did the evil in this car spring from because you're right there's a lot of emphasis on Roland LeBay the previous owner on the other hand it seems like the car has functioned as a kind of you know succubus or whatever to him as well insofar that it's as it's affected his life and it's also kind of I don't know whether it's aged him exactly, but it's it had similar effects on him as it had on Arnie. So that does sort of suggest that there was something uh, going back before he encountered the car. But apparently when they were making the film, they actually rang up Stephen King and said, look, can you clarify for us, was this car born evil or um, did something happen? Uh, and he basically said, yeah, I don't know. You know, you make it up. I don't care. Really. <laughs> so that was the kind of idea of like how how invested Stephen King was in kind of making it all sort of tying up all the loose ends. But to me... That didn't really bother me reading the book. I just found it very engrossing and very kind of compulsive. And a lot of people have likened that novel to junk food. They, they've said, you know, there's this accusation that Stephen King writes junk food and that's not junk, you know, junk literature. And that's not always true. But with this one, maybe it is. But at the same time, I found it very pleasurable and very kind of thrilling, you know, a thrilling read. And, and the film as well, I enjoyed. What I'd say is like the Voyager episode, I don't think it hits any of that. I suppose because it's not scary. It's not, they can't really do horror. And it's also got this this central problem, I think, that um, 
I was reading, I don't know if you ever read Darren Mooney's uh, reviews. He, he, he writes these long reviews of, of various Dodge episodes and he wrote one about this episode that I thought was quite interesting. And he was basically saying, he thought the problem was this is a novel that is really all about sex and sexuality and kind of these these weird relationship between the man and his car and this kind of, it, it's got two love triangles in it because it's got the love triangle between the two male protagonist, well, the two male characters in the novel, the protagonist and the narrator, plus the, the sort of love interest. And then it's also got the whole sort of sexualization of the car that's given a female name and that's kind of likened to women in various ways. But that basically Voyager can't really handle any of that because it's very kind of clean and, you know, prime time and sort of, you know, this is Star Trek and it's the future. So it's got this kind of weird mix where the the woman character who plays Alice in the Voyager episode she does do the sort of seductive voice and everything. You know, there's this scene where she's kind of calling to Tom, like a sort of siren or something. She's almost like the Borg queen calling to Picard or whatever. But at the same time, there's nothing sexy between them. I mean, there's this kind of suggestion that he's cheating on Balana with this with this shuttle. And even at the end of the of the uh, episode, the last line pretty much, I think, is he makes this joke about the Delta, he and the Delta Flyer are just friends. You know, he's not going to have any more affairs with weird vehicles. But at the same time, there's there's no real kind of sexual energy between them. Do you know what I mean? And part of that maybe is because it's Voyager and it all has to be quite tame and quite kind of clean. Whereas the Stephen King is so sort of scrunchy and and weird and twisted and sort of perverse. And none of that can really translate. So what you get is a translation of the most sort of basic level, but you, but you don't get all the kind of interesting, gritty baggage that goes along with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would agree with you 100%. And it is a limitation of the medium. It is a limitation of what they wanted to do with Voyager. And it is a limitation of the characters. Tom, you know, I don't know, maybe it's just me, but I don't find Robbie Duncan McNeil all that sexy, you know, like, I don't know. That could just be me. Well, though, even so. with the stubble. <laughs> even with the stubble, yes. Oh. So, um, and then also, like I've mentioned before, problematic, I am not that big of a fan of the relationship that he has with Bolana. I know that People think it's the greatest thing ever. I think they hit it way on the head too much and they force us to believe that they love each other. You know, like you get into the episodes like the killing. I think it's the killing game when they're doing the Nazi World War Two stuff and the and workforce where it's like, oh, Tom and Bellana are such star crossed lovers. Even when they're out of their minds, they love each other. You know, even when they don't know who they are, they love each other. And I'm like, that just, that just doesn't work for me that they have to hit it on the head that much. It just doesn't work for me, but you know, I'm a miserable old coot, right? So, <laughs> but, um, you know, this book, I really love the novel. I, it might be my favorite Stephen King novel. Like, I really love it. I think it's really well written. And, and while not everything is paid off in the novel, I kind of really like that because the novel is structured in a very interesting way. And I've never read a book like this. So the book is in three parts and the first and the third part are in first person point of view of his friend. He's the main narrator of it. And I know that I'd seen the movie first. So the first time I picked up the book, I was actually quite surprised that the book was starting off in a first person point of view of the friend of Dennis. Cause you know, the, it's about Arnie and his car, but then the middle part of the book is third person of all this other stuff that's going on because Dennis has been taken out of the equation because he's been injured in a football game. And it's a really great structure for this book because it does give you the point of view of the friend trying to save the situation. But there are other things that go on that you're going to have to be told that you can't be told from a first person point of view. So I think the structure of the book is really amazing and really fascinating, you know, and we even get a chapter in the book that's basically told from the point of view of the car, you know, and which is funny because it's funny how memory plays with you because I remembered a much larger section of the center of the novel being told from the point of view of the car. But when I read it again this time, it's only like three pages you know, and it is that scene that you were talking about earlier where the, the car was chasing down and killing that one guy. And while it doesn't crush itself in there, it's still a very good adaptation of that scene and a very close adaptation. But then when it comes to the movie, not only do I love John Carpenter, but I love this adaptation of the movie. And a lot of people complain about movie adaptations and that they don't hold up because you got to take things out and they're not as good. And while I 100% agree that this is not as good as the book. 
I think it's a wonderful translation because as a movie and how movies work, it gives you everything that you need. Fine, in the movie, it's more the car than the previous owner. Fine, in the movie, they combined the two brothers together. And, you know, this, uh, sorry, with the owner, Raleigh, and his brother, George LeBay, they've combined those two ca- characters together. And George LeBay has Raleigh's personality. But again, that's just to get rid of a character because it's it, in a two-hour movie, you, you get overwhelmed with characters and you can't follow it. But I, I think it's a great translation. And while it's not scary... And maybe it doesn't hold up as quite a horror movie in my 30s as it did when I was a teenager. It's still a wonderful, wonderful film. And I think a perfect translation and adaptation of the novel. Well, and there are certainly moments in the film that I think are are very cinematic and that kind of capture. I mean, the opening of the film, for example, where we do see the car kind of rolling off the production line. And as you said, uh, one guy actually gets killed on the on the car production line. I think that's a great scene. And it, it really sets up the kind of nostalgia of that period of the kind of 1950s, because this is a story that basically takes place... Well, I think it, it takes place in 1978, maybe, but it was both the book and the film were released in 1983. I mean, it, this was a book that was in development as a film, I think, because Stephen King was on a bit of a high <laughs> in, in more senses than one at this time. And and so his the book went under adaptation, you know, before it had even been released. So the book came out in April, I think, and the film came out just before Christmas, sort of like December time. But a lot of it is tied to this kind of slightly twisted nostalgia for the 1950s. And I suppose, insofar as we think of when Stephen King's writes horror, often it's, you know, he'll take something seemingly kind of innocuous or or even sort of friendly, like a clown or something, and ter- give it this kind of dark inflection. Definitely that's an element of what's going on in this book is we think of the 1950s as quite wholesome, as quite kind of safe almost, you know, compared to, well, certainly today and from the perspective of these stories, the kind of late 70s, early 80s. But here the nostalgia has this kind of real uh, sinister kind of edge to it. And I, and and the book, I think, he, he quotes a lot from song lyrics. There are song lyrics at the head of each chapter, I think. And in the film, one of the things that I thought worked very effectively in the film that actually is almost impossible to capture in the novel is how sinister this, you know, quite kind of innocent 1950s music, which is on the uh, stereo in the car. Basically, the, the, one of the quirks about this car is it will not pick up anything other than kind of golden oldies stations. Basically, it only plays old music. And there's a great scene in the film where I think Lee is leaving Dennis's house and Arnie turns up and she she's aware of it because you hear this music coming out of the car. And that's your kind of first instinct that, that Christine is around is this kind of, you know, slightly kind of syrupy 50s mu- uh, music. And I think that that is very effective in there. And, and weirdly, I suppose, with Voyager, I mean, you're right, it was an obvious transition for Tom Paris, because of course, Tom Paris is obsessed with the 1950s. You know, he he does have the kind of Grease Monkey program, he does have the jukebox. He, and they do mention the jukebox in the episode, actually, that's what pays for the shuttle is Tom Paris's collection of of like old 1950s music, which is a nice kind of touch. But at the same time, of course, the shuttle he buys is is not a 1950s car. It's a, it's a you know, futuristic spaceship. So it's kind of like, I don't know, again, I sort of feel like, yes, it makes sense that they translate it to his character, but then they haven't, there's no way that they can translate across the, like the vehicle itself, which is so much of what Christine is about. And if you you know, if you read the book, you get this very strong image of this car. You know, if you watch the film, I mean, the car, aside from anything, is absolutely beautiful. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? And that does come across on screen as much as it's this homicidal evil monster. It's it's a gorgeous piece of design. It's a beautiful kind of piece of engineering. And you, there's a certain amount of kind of visual pleasure just in the car in the film, I think. In the Voyager episode, the first thing Paris says, he, say, he says, it's like a work of art, that shuttle. And you look at it. I don't know about you. I look at it. It's like, yeah, if I'm taking out my Eagle Moss subscriptions, that's not the month I'm looking forward to. <laughs> you know, it's a pretty, pretty nondescript. And it also look, it looks almost like a Federation shuttle. I mean, it's supposed to be this kind of exotic alien shuttle. And it's just, you know, pretty nothingy, I'd say. So I kind of feel like that that's something that the Voyager episode, they could have, they could have at least, if they'd made that shuttle look really kind of sexy and really kind of interesting and, and strange and alien, then that might have, have captured something or, or, or even made it kind of, I mean, I don't know how you make a futuristic shuttle have that kind of retro appeal, but they could have, I think they could have done a bit more with the design there because so much of what we're kind of asked to buy into both with the film of Christine and, and in some ways with the novel, when we're imagining it in our heads is about the kind of, 
the wonder of this vehicle and, and what also you know what does a car represent for an american teenager mm-hmm. and this whole kind of nostalgia around the 1950s and everything and so obviously they can't translate that kind of directly across but maybe they could have tried to capture a bit more of the kind of the charm that goes along with christine as well as this kind of sinister undercurrent Mm-hmm. See, that's kind of the interesting thing because we look at this Voyager ship and we're like, this thing is ugly. And we're told multiple times in the book about how this is such a terrible car and this wasn't a popular car that people didn't like. But when we get to see it on screen, it really truly is a beautiful car. And even in the film, Will Darnell's like, guy's really good with his hands, but he's got terrible taste in cars. You know, like they even say that in there. So like people are talking about how this is not a nice car. This is not a popular car. It's not a good looking car. But when we see it on screen, it is. She's gorgeous, you know, and I don't know. I don't know why the characters say that and why it's thought to be not a very nice car. But I mean, like even there, the interesting thing is the type of car that he's chosen. You know, it's a Plymouth Fury, right? Like and Fury means anger, you know, rage. And, and the like, Furies are also like the the beings in the underworld, aren't they, that come up and kind of cause mayhem and pursue men and, you, you know, so there's a sort of supernatural hint even in that word, I think, there. Yeah, is it, I'm not familiar with that aspect of it myself. There, well, this is this is where we should have Clara on the show now. But the, the Furies, I think they come, don't they come up in Greek uh, mythology from the underworld and they pursue men who have, you know, betrayed their wives or done, I think that they're connected with a kind of vengeful idea of like punishing the the guilty and that kind of thing you get pursued i may be wrong you get pursued by the furies even even if i am wrong they're they're, broadly speaking they are kind of demonic sort of spirits or kind of monsters um in a way so i I hadn't even thought of that connection but you're right you know fury fury as in like naked rage but also uh that kind of supernatural element and the naked rage is something that does come across because you know arnie for example there's a scene where these the kind of um this sort of human antagonists the school bullies basically who've got it in for him they decide to go and trash his car and they they you know they, they smash it up completely and they even perform an unmentionable act on the dashboard which is the most kind of kind of you, you know um they poop on it disgusting they poop on it yeah they poop on it <laughs> there's there's another word that occurs frequently in the book but that we can't use but that is interesting because it's it's one of these things that kind of ties into the sort of general feel of the book there's a there's a word that Roland LeBay uses to describe people who he doesn't like poopers we might we might poopers, translate yes. it as and, and Arnie starts using it and it becomes this kind of sinister thing of like you know where has he picked up this word from why is he talking like this but but yeah so there's that 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 scene there and and his reaction is absolutely one of fury you know of absolute rage of kind of you know a scary level of anger you know even for someone whose car that he spent months working on has been um has been trashed but there's is somehow it goes beyond that he's kind of almost lost his mind at that point i think that comes across quite well in the in the film as well that sort of that what they've done is it is it's activated something in him that the car has kind of put him in touch with somehow Mm-hmm. And, and that's the interesting thing is that they both, both the film and the book work in their unique ways. Like it's, you know, where does he get this attitude from? Because, you know, George LeBay has all this anger in him when we meet him. But again, in the book, that's all the character traits of, of Roland LeBay. And so in the book, it's interesting that it's Roland LeBay's soul. But in the movie, it works just fine that it's the car that's possessing him and he's getting all these traits from the car and the car passed the traits on to Roland. And then after Roland died, passed it on to George. And after George died uh, or after Arnie bought it from George, they passed it on to, to Arnie, you know, and so it, it works in its own medium and translates well in that way, you know, and you know, some of the stuff that you're talking about, like with, with the condensing of the plot works really well. Like, yes, these people beat up this car and in the book, the car just kind of heals itself, but we get this awesome scene in the book where the car almost performs this kind of a striptease dance in front of Arnie to repair itself. And Arnie is watching the car repair itself. And, you know, that kind of thing isn't quite so blatant in the novel, but it works really well in the movie along with John Carpenter and Alan Howard's amazing score, right? Like, you know, it's such a John Carpenter score for a John Carpenter film, but it, it translates very well and it works in its own way, which just doesn't translate to Alice, unfortunately, because music is, music is such an important part of the movie. 
And again, this is more based on the movie, and they do some amazing stuff with the music in the movie. Like, the transition in going from the 50s to the 70s is the same song by different bands. And you can hear the 50s tone of it so you know where you are, and you can hear the 70s tone of it so that you know where you are. And then, you know, certain things happen, like somebody's trying to break into the car, and a song comes on, and you keep on knocking, but they we can't get you in, whatever the lyrics are exactly. You know, like, so the car itself is controlling the radio station in the film, picking the songs that are being played to convey its emotions, almost like Bumblebee and Transformers. You know, so it's using music to convey its own emotions through the car, which is really kind of interesting. So, and they, they, there's also in the film, there's a great use of the song "Bad to the Bone," both at the very beginning of the film and at the end. And I mean, if if anything's going to sort of un- underscore this idea that, as far as the filmmakers are concerned, Christine is just an evil vehicle, and it's kind of from its inception. You know, that's that's there at the beginning. It's literally it's bad to the bone, uh, and the, and then it Something kind of comes very back. Interesting about that, Duncan, is while that has become such a cliche thing to use that song in a movie, this was actually the first movie to ever use this song because it just came out, and John Carpenter snatched up the rights immediately. So this is the first movie to ever use "Bad to the Bone" to. To uh, to apply it to a character in this case the car, that's interesting. That's, that's that that is interesting. Well, I mean, I think it's very effective. You, you know, and also, so when was when was that song released then? Around eighty three time eighty three. But it has that kind of it does have that sort of rock and roll feel, right? So I suppose there's that element of you know when we think about the fifties. So there's the kind of schmaltzy syrupy music, but there's also the kind of if you think about the 1950s, there's the kind of fear of the teenager. Do you know what I mean? If you're not one of the teenagers, there's the kind of the, the fear of the gangs or the kind of the real like rock and roll um, side of it with the kind of motorbikes and the, you, you know, and in this case, the big cars or whatever. And I think there's a kind of interesting element in, you know, talking about the kind of way that nostalgia is used both in the book and the film and, and maybe not so much in this episode, but certainly in Voyager more generally, the, 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 the characters in Christine are explicitly based on characters from Happy Days. And Happy Days, of course, was again a show that was made in the, what, 70s, I guess, but harking back to the 50s and to that kind of nostalgia. Because the main character is called Arnie Cunningham, obviously Richie Cunningham is the guy in, in Happy Days. And there's this kind of idea of these sort of archetypes, I suppose, the kind of, you know, Arnie's the more sort of preppy, you, you know, a bit of a sad sack really to to begin with in this story his friend is a bit more uh like he's on the football team is a bit more of the jock he's, he's kind of not maybe he's not quite the fonz but he's kind of in that in that sort of direction but really that's the transition that arnie makes is that he ends up being the cool kid with like the leather jacket and the kind of you know going from the kind of preppy sort of innocent 1950s model to this kind of bad boy model you know the kind of teenager that everyone's a bit sort of intimidated by or or, or afraid of and i suppose there's that there's that element and maybe this is another reason why it possibly struggles to translate to voyager is it's very much a story about teenagers and it's very much yes it's a story about teenagers in the 1980s or or the late 70s or whatever it is but at the same time it's very much influenced by the idea of the teenager as something that emerged in the 1950s and as something that was you know both empowering for that generation but also very threatening to other generations and a lot of the kind of conflict in the novel aside from the car itself is between you know Arnie and his parents for example who disapprove of it and I wonder whether that's another reason that it sort of struggles to translate to Voyager because as much as they're you know with Tom Paris okay maybe season one Tom Paris we might say he was a bit like a teenager he was kind of rebellious he was a bit of a troublemaker and so on by this point you know Tom Paris is a kind of you know he's pretty respectable he's kind of he, he's sorted himself out but there's this kind of tendency to see it as teenage rebellion so you know to see Janeway as the disapproving mum to see Chakotay as the kind of slightly cautious but ultimately indulgent dad because there's this scene at the beginning where Paris is basically saying can I get the shuttle can I get the shuttle and Chakotay's sort of you know talking him through it like a sort of very much like the dad basically saying well you you know yes if you speak to your mother and you know we can kind of you know come to an agreement or whatever but kind of making sure he doesn't take it too far and then Alice herself in her kind of human form talks to him about sneaking around I think which is exactly what you think of teenagers as doing kind of sneaking around but at the same time you know Tom Paris is not a teenager he's in a committed adult relationship by this point so I think there's this sort of weird element of are they trying to kind of 
is it basically setting him back to like season one Paris? And it's very reminiscent of that, you know, that arc early on in Voyager where actually he was kind of going undercover or whatever, but they were setting up this idea that he was, you know, he was always late. And in this episode, he's, he's late for duty. He kind of wasn't wearing the right uniform in this. I can't remember if he did that the first time. In this episode, anyway, Chakotay says, you know, you better shave and put your correct uniform on. In this episode, it even is revealed he started stealing parts for the for the work that he's doing. So all of this seems to be a way of kind of trying to drag Paris back to the kind of bad boy archetype of Paris that we started off Voyager with, which is, of course, so far away from where we are now with Paris. So there's a kind of real confusion, I suppose. Is it just like, would this shuttle have had this effect on anybody and that it had made them behave badly and, you know, screw over their friends and their girlfriends and everyone and, and lie to people? Or or is there some sense that it's kind of, it had to be Paris because Paris is the one who, as much as his character has developed and as much as we've seen him change over these six years by this point or whatever it is, that somehow he has the potential within him to just be that same guy who... You, you know, and he sort of references it because he names her Alice after a girl who rejected him at the Academy. So again, he's kind of, he, he's associating the shuttle with his youth and with his kind of, you know, we, we've seen what Paris is like in season one. We can imagine at Starfleet Academy, he was a real, <laughs> pretty awful piece of work, you know. So so it's kind of, it, it, it's almost kind of put him back in that box somehow. And I don't know whether that sort of, whether we buy that or not, because it's like, is is this kind of alien influence enough for us to sort of undo six years worth of character development on this character and to kind of just say, okay, fine, this is really, this is kind of season one Paris that we're seeing from now on for the rest of this episode. Yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't quite translate well. And I think that you're right. Like it kind of had to be Paris because I mean, if it's Harry Kim, like he doesn't have a girlfriend to be like betraying and whatnot. Right. So it's, it's unique to him. And then it doesn't really, it's not really clear why, why this is all happening in the book, except that we get this program in there. And had he not seen the shuttlecraft on screen, he wouldn't have bought it, you know, in the, in the, in the book and the movie, you know, actually, well, in the book, it's not really clear why it's Arnie in that, like when Raleigh puts the, uh, the car up for sale in the book, he just puts it up for sale. He, he brings it out of his garage. He sets it up on his property and puts a sign on it. He doesn't advertise it or anything like this. It's just there. And just because Dennis happens to take that route home, Arnie sees the car and basically Christine attracts him in the car. And again, it's not clear as to why that happens in the book. You know, in the movie, you can say, hey, it's because the car is haunted and it, it grabbed him with its own personal spirit kind of thing, right? Like its own personal haunting grabbed Arnie in that way. And in the book, it's not quite clear, but it, it, it doesn't like a couple of things that you were saying there, like it doesn't work because, yes, in the book and the movie, it is all about teenagers. You know, teenagers are associated with this certain kind of rage and rebellion. You know, they're not the most respectful of people. So all of these hauntings that are happening to him. You know, parents have described their kids as, I don't even know who you are anymore when they get in arguments with their kids. Well, in the book, it's directly he's haunted, right? You know, he's haunted by this other person's spirit. So the parents don't understand it and they're just blowing it off as teenage changes. But in the book, it's a ghost, right? So, and that just doesn't translate to Tom Paris and that character. So the other thing I wonder about is whether the use of an actress to, to play the kind of human version of Alice in some ways, lessens the impact of the idea of this kind of supernatural vehicle. I mean, I think if Stephen King had done that, uh, or if John Carpenter had done that, it would have completely killed those stories. And I do wonder whether... I, I understand the necessity of it, because he can't just be in the shuttle bay the whole time, and you have to have some form of communication to like put on screen. But at the same time, I don't know, I feel like that kind of... it Again, it sort of makes it seem a bit a bit bland somehow. And I wonder whether... I mean, one way they could have gone with it would be more to kind of you know, we had this idea of late at night, this kind of voice calling to him. I mean, the novel in particular, one thing that I think that John Carpenter could have made more of in making the film, and I, and I appreciate, you know, the novel is very large. It's kind of a bit bloated. There was a lot that had to be cut out to, to turn it into a film. There's a lot of stuff in the novel that is kind of, it's very interesting dreams. There are a lot of kind of nasty dreams that people have. And there's a kind of ambiguity. Are they just having these dreams because they're sort of, freaked out by what they're witnessing in their real life or is the dream itself almost being kind of a symptom of the presence of this kind of malign evil thing and and a lot of the characters they have this 
there's one of the things I think is really fascinating about the novel is this suspicion of the evilness of the car that they almost can't bring themselves to articulate. So they feel it. They know that something is going on. They know that something is wrong. They know that he can't really fix this car up the way that he's saying he has without there being something kind of supernatural about it. But no one will really dare say it. And it kind of comes out in their dreams. So Lee, for example, the girlfriend has a dream where the car tries to kill her, I think, or is menacing her. And then, of course, in real life, in real life, in the story, the car does indeed try to kill her. And there are also these kind of weird chapters where there's a kind of sense of you know there are literal dreams and then there's there's also this amazing sequence where Arnie and Dennis go for a ride in the car this kind of late night ride in the car and they have this bizarre sort of phantasmagoric experience where there are all the people who've died in the car their sort of ghosts are there these kind of hideous kind of dead bodies basically because uh, several people have died in the car including a little girl uh, the daughter of the of the previous owner and they also have this weird kind of thing where they're driving through the town and they're seeing the town as it was in the 1950s rather than as it is in the present day and so i think the the book manages to get a lot of mileage out of so to speak sorry the pardon the pun <laughs> uh, gets a lot of mileage out of th- this kind of idea of the sort of the boundary between reality and fantasy and between fear and terror you know the fear of something and the kind of rational idea of well you know this is what could really be happening and to some extent i think the movie just kind of sidesteps that a bit for the sake of brevity and i don't think the voyager episode really engages with that at all because i mean all we get is say Belana, well, Belana says, I think that thing tried to kill me and people sort of laugh at her. And then she goes to Janeway and Janeway, Janeway's quite unsympathetic when Belana says, basically, Tom's behaving really weirdly. I think there's something sinister going on. And Janeway just says slightly kind of dismissively, oh, you know, you guys are always fighting, you, you know, basically implying that Belana's overreacting. And it's only when, of course, it, you know, being Janeway, when there's, and it being Star Trek, when there's a kind of scientific element, like, oh, this shuttle has this neural interface, then she's like, oh, okay, fine, neural interface, it can be affecting how someone's behaving or whatever. So, of course, there's also the element that, you know, Star Trek, it's not really a magical thing, it's a kind of scientific thing. And and that's that's how people can come to accept, okay, his brain's being interfered with. So, in a kind of Star Trek sense, that's how we understand someone being coerced or being under the kind of influence. But one of the things that I think is one of the real strengths of the novel is this kind of creeping awareness that actually every, nearly everyone comes to the same conclusion about this car after being in its presence for a certain amount of time or after witnessing the effect on Arnie. But no one can bring themselves to speak of it because it's so irrational and it's so kind of, they don't want to be thought mad until, you know, quite late in the novel where Dennis, the best friend, and Lee, the girlfriend, or the ex-girlfriend from from this point, get to a point where they're able to kind of share their feelings about this thing that's happening and and actually be able to talk about it openly. And and this kind of is tied in as well with the two of them becoming closer and then this kind of element of of betrayal that takes place, you know, which is why, as I say, there's like two love triangles in this, in this story. There's a, there's the, two guys after the same girl and then there's the you know two girls after the same guy in a sense you know the human girl and the female car that seems to be very possessive of him yeah i think you're right there in that you you you've kind of hit it on the head there hit the nail on the head that people sense it but they don't want to talk about it in the book because it doesn't make any sense no this car can't fix itself you know yeah fine it doesn't make any sense how he's 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 repairing this car but that's not enough for any type of suspicion. Yeah, I get a bad feeling about this car, but I mean, w- what does that really mean? And, and, you know, they, they clearly sense something in this car, which is affecting them deeply. And that's what's causing the dreams. And that doesn't translate in the film because of the length of time, you know? The other thing I, I, I'm kind of wondering about is whether, I mean, when I was reading this book in particular, and I think it comes out in the film, it's just thinking about what does this car kind of represent or what does having a car represent because it's also for Arnie it's his first car you know there's this big thing about it being freedom from his parents I mean and obviously you know particularly in America in a country which is so large where it to to a large extent you kind of need a car to get around but there's also this kind of real um, romanticization of the, the open road and getting out there and you know burning up the road and kind of speed and power in these cars I mean like you know when I say this car is beautiful, it's beautiful. It's also huge, certainly by a European standard. You know, our, the cars we have over here, our roads are smaller and our cars tend to be much smaller. So you see these kind of massive American cars, particularly of that era, and they are quite kind of imposing. 
And I think, you, you know, and in terms of shooting the car, there are things you can do, you know, try and shoot it from down low and make it kind of look bigger and make it look imposing. These are also things that I think the Voyager episode uh, never really tries to do with the um, with the shuttle. But there's also... Well, the, the thing with cars, though, as well, like it is a sense of teenage freedom, you know, and it is that, that fi- one of those final hurdles almost in becoming an adult and a grown-up is having your own vehicle, right? And so, again, it, it plays off of that trope of like i don't know who my child is anymore because you know they're growing up and you know the parents uh arnie's parents don't want him to grow up and the the attitude that they have is a very controlling attitude for his life he's a good boy they've kind of been able to control his life up until now and he's now he's reached the age where they can't quite control him anymore and so again that that element of the book is is it a haunted car or is it just somebody growing up? Is it a haunted car or is it just he's bought a car and now he's more one step closer to being an adult? And that's he's going to be going away to college. But, you know, having the car means he can go anywhere. Right. And the, so the parents don't have that control over him. If he has that freedom, just just hit the road and go. You know, I remember the freedom of having my own car. And believe it or not, I actually had a Plymouth Fury. It wasn't a 58, right? No it way. Was a, it was a 73. <laughs> but yeah, my first car was a Plymouth Fury. And there was, this is, the movie was part of the reason why. When I saw that for sale, it was a cheap car. I paid like 500, 300 bucks, something like that for it. It was in really Brandon, good shape. you really, you really didn't take the message of this movie. <laughs> you went out and bought one of those cars. <laughs> it was yellow. It wasn't red, you know, so. Who knows? Someone might have sprayed it. <laughs> well, I think there's also this element of like um that that does come across in a way in the voyager episode because there's one of the quite nice scenes i think in the voyager episode is where paris talks to alice about his his first experience flying a shuttle and he talks about this and he was eight years old i think and his father took him up in the shuttle and let him you know take the controls and it's almost i mean although i said that voyager is kind of unable to to deal with the kind of sexual side of this story. It, it, the way he tells it, it almost sounds like a story about losing his virginity, you know, and having this kind of freedom and becoming an adult and becoming, you know, this sort of powerful person. And also that I suppose the idea of nostalgia is there because what he says is he, he said he felt like he was flying and he's tried his entire life to recapture that feeling and it's never been the same again. So even flying Voyager through the Delta Quadrant, even flying the Delta Flyer, you know, we know that Paris is so identified with that kind of, idea of being the pilot of the kind of freedom of of being the one at the helm of kind of and we know that he's a genius at it you know that he's kind of faster than anyone else he's more skillful than anyone else he's kind of you know he's like a formula one racing driver basically a starfleet but that at the same time the reason he's kind of pushing that his whole life is to try and recapture something that he can never get again because it can never be his first time again somehow and so I, I suppose that is an interesting element that i think does kind of land um, in the episode, I mean, we've been quite negative about this this Voyager episode, and I have to, I don't, I don't think it's a very successful Voyager episode. But there are things in there that are nice. There are elements in there that work, you know, either in terms of lifting from Christine and the kind of pleasures that you were saying you you derive from that, from seeing things that are kind of familiar up there on the screen. But also, you know, there there are, there are elements in that episode that work well, even if as a whole it doesn't quite kind of hang together and i have to say i i did enjoy i enjoyed watching it more this time having read the book and having seen the film of christine it just, i guess it just gave me a different perspective on the voyager episode and it gave me new things to look for and, and i did sort of you know get more out of it in a way contrary really to what brian fuller was saying about them having lifted too much you know i mean maybe that's true i think they certainly could have done a more interesting version of this storyline even on voyager that then they ended up with. But I mean, for me, it, it definitely, it didn't hurt the enjoyment of it. So, sometimes I think when Star Trek borrows from something and you go back to the original and then you watch the Star Trek version, it's actually kind of disappointing because you realise that what seemed quite original and interesting and kind of um, surprising is essentially just a rip-off. Yeah, I, I think that's the case most of the time. You know, like with the ones that I said earlier, comparing Dawn to Enemy Mine, Dawn is a pale comparison of Enemy Mine because Enemy Mine is a masterpiece. You know, Marauders to Magnificent Seven, I mean, while Magnificent Seven itself is a remake of Seven Samurai, I mean, Marauders is a pale comparison of even Magnificent Seven, which is a masterpiece. And that's the interesting thing, but it's fun to see what they were trying to do. But the limitation of a 45-minute episode really ties their hands in what they can do and how they can adapt that story. So, yeah, you know. It's it's partly the 45 minutes. It's also just partly it being Voyager, I think, and and the kind of 
formula of Voyager and the kind of tone of Voyager is a, in a way a bit of a mishmash. I mean, you've got this weird situation where you've got someone like Brian Fuller, who, as we see from a lot of his work, is interested in quite dark, uh, often quite gory, quite sort of grisly stuff. Uh, you've got at, the, at that time, Brandon Braga running Voyager, who again, we know is interested in quite dark, sort of twisted, psychological, uh, very interested in horror. And yet at the same time, when they try to kind of bring all that to the table, taking a source material which is quite grisly is quite horrific is quite kind of scrungy and interesting somehow it doesn't quite it doesn't quite make it across the other thing i think the voyager episode really lacks that you get in both the book and the film of christine is a really satisfying ending where the car is just smashed to pieces (laughs) and i think in a way you need that i think you know and in the book it, it, it comes out slightly differently in the in the book and the film, but basically the story ends with a big showdown and you've got Lee and Dennis who are, are using some kind of huge vehicle. In, in the in the film, it's like a kind of forklift truck or something, I think, isn't it? And in the book, it's a... It's like a it's digger a, in the is film. It a, it's a digger, right. Okay. A, a, anyway, like a, a, a large vehicle that ought to be easily a match for a sort of standard automobile. But at the same time, Christine really gives them a run for their money. You know, it looks like Lee's going to get killed at one point. It's quite, it's quite tense the way it's written. And I think the way it comes across on screen is, is, is quite tense as well, given that it's in some ways a ridiculous concept. But you definitely get an element of kind of catharsis and pleasure in just seeing that car smashed to pieces uh, after everything that you've been through. That, you know, in the Voyager episode... We don't get that. We just get, you know, like we've seen a million times in Star Trek, a shuttle kind of breaking up and falling to pieces. And then we move on and it's almost like it never happened. And I guess that's the other element is, you know, and, and with the the Voyager, again, it ends with Janeway saying, set a course for the Alpha Quadrant, like very brisk, very like, let's just put this behind us. This never happened. You know, it's almost don't don't need to think about it. Whereas I think certainly the book of Christine, there's quite a lengthy section towards the end about, you know, how they went on with their lives and how they kind of never quite got over this experience. And, yeah. you know, he reads something in the newspaper about something that's the one guy that got away. Yeah, exactly. You know, exactly. So, something kind of um, that makes you think maybe, maybe the car wasn't really completely destroyed enough. And even if it was the fact that they're kind of living with this and he and Lee have kind of, you know, they're no longer in a relationship and he's trying to write to her and, and uh, doesn't he, he writes to her and says something like, you know, how do you, how do you manage it? Basically this kind of, trauma really post-traumatic stress in a way of having gone through all of this also the, the the story in the book is darker insofar as more people die i mean there's a lot more kind of collateral damage in the book than in the film so arnie well arnie dies in both instances but in the book his whole family is killed as well and it, it's very much there's this emphasis on like they're kind of trying to save him but at a certain point they can't save him because he's been kind of taken in too too far by this evil force obviously that's not going to happen with voyager and tom paris tom paris is going to come out of it he's going to be completely fine the next week him and balana are not going to even really barely register it as a kind of ripple in their relationship you you know everything is going to kind of reset to the sort of status quo yeah tom and balana will be fine oh that crazy shuttle that messed you all up you remember that time Mm -hmm. yeah (laughs) that that thing happened but you know you mentioned that letter that he writes to lee in the book and her response is a postcard of like, deal with what? He he asks her, how are you dealing with it? And her response is, all it is is just deal with what? You know, yeah. or, or something brief like that. And it's like, it's interesting because you can interpret that so many ways. Has she completely forgotten about it? But my interpretation, because it's the postcard as a response and it just says deal with what, she's like, I'm choosing to put this behind me and I'm choosing to not acknowledge it anymore. That's how I interpret her response in the book. It's there and she's not dealing with it. But because she simply sent this postcard saying deal with what, that's her saying I'm choosing to go on and be strong in my life. Well, who knows? Maybe, you know, maybe that's what happens on Voyager week by week is uh, it's not that there's no continuity. It's not that they forget that things happened. It's just that everyone is like rigidly choosing, choosing to move forward. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> deal. <laughs> that could be the show's kind of uh, like tagline deal with what, but, um, <laughs> but I don't know. I feel like, you know, as I say, maybe we've been a little bit harsh on this Voyager episode. Uh, maybe there are people who are, are, are big fans of Alice. And, you know, if you are get in touch with us, uh, you know, hit us up on the Babel conference, let us know, why you think that episode succeeds on its own merits. But, you know, it's, it, it's, it's interesting. I think it's always interesting when Star Trek borrows from, you know, whether it's history or culture or, or film or literature or whatever. Obviously, that's what this show is, is all about. And certainly, this is one of those examples where 
you know, the, the borrowing is, is very explicit, really, um, where they basically just took the idea, okay, let's do um, Christine on Voyager. And this is kind of what they came up with. And, you know, it's always interesting to see how that plays out and how some things do translate better than others. Yeah, I agree with you 100%. And I'd like to hear people, you know, if you haven't seen Christine, go back and watch the film and check it out. You know, mm. because it, it is fun. I mean, we've kind of, we've spoiled the movie for you. We've spoiled the book for you. We've talked a lot about it, but it's still a fun comparison to have. And it still is. In my opinion, I know that you said you didn't agree with me, but I think it's a five-star film. And I think it's a great masterpiece of 80s cinema. And it's a classic, you know, and it's one of those horror films that shaped my preferred film watching, you know, my film watching experiences. Yeah, I mean, I didn't dislike it as a film. I, th- I thought it was a good film. I don't know. Maybe if I'd seen the film first, I would have responded more to the film and then gone back to the book and and seen the book as kind of all the, the extra baggage and the kind of deleted scenes and the kind of bump around it. Whereas obviously for me going into it, not really knowing much about it, I loved the book. But I have to say, you know, both the book and the film were trashed when they were released. I mean, it wasn't just John Carpenter who wasn't happy with the film. A lot of people didn't like that film. It kind of, I think, has become more of a kind of cult classic uh, in later years, but initially it wasn't a big hit. The book, I mean, I think it had a, I, I read quite a positive review in the New York Times when it was first published, but a lot of people hated it. And even now, kind of retrospectively, a lot of people see it as kind of Stephen King's first real failure and are quite harsh on it. I mean, things like, for example, the the structure that you were saying you found quite interesting, where the, the narrator switches like a third of the way through the book. Apparently, Stephen King admitted basically he only did that because he wrote himself into a box and he realised he couldn't tell the next bit of the story with the narrator that he'd intended to use for the book. And so he kind of just, you know, flipped it. And, you know, in the next chapter, it's it's narrated by some kind of unknown, you know, more sort of general narrator. And I have to say, when I was reading it, I was a little bit put off by that. I, I sort of thought, wow, that's a weird, that's an unusual decision. I mean, it didn't really bother me. There were lots of things like that in the book that, didn't maybe quite add up, didn't quite make sense, seemed a little bit of a shortcut or whatever. But I kind of just went with it and really enjoyed the the sort of, the, went along for the ride. You know, when, you, know you strap yourself into this uh, this mad, slightly depraved vehicle and, and just go, go where it takes you, you know. So I would say, I would say recommend, uh, definitely, yeah, go, go and watch the film, but I would recommend going back to the book as well and, and see what you think. And, you know, it maybe, yeah, maybe it does have its flaws, but it does also just have that quality of real, you know, if you like Stephen King's kind of approach to horror and so on, I think there's a lot of that. It's got that in spades. And I mean, I, I also, I have to say, I, um, I didn't read it as a, I think you, you got hold of an old paperback, didn't you? I was actually listening to it on Audible because I generally do a lot of my reading uh, these days on as audiobooks rather than actual books, just because I have more time to listen than I have to read. And I think I, I, I think I said to you at some point when we were, you know, talking about this when I was listening to it, I think Stephen King is probably the best writer for audiobooks of anyone. And I, that sounds like I'm kind of damning with faint praise, but there's something about the way that he writes that if you get a good narrator in there to read it, it really, it gets into your brain and it gets into you. Do you know what I mean? It's sort of mm-hmm. uh, in a way that reading it on the page, I'm not saying you can't have that experience reading it on the page, but you know, I started getting slightly freaked out by this novel, partly from, you know, I'd be listening to it while I was walking the dogs around the block and you suddenly start, you know, looking around every car that's parked up on the curb and thinking, you know, I don't know, it, it, it gets it gets into your mind somehow, partly because I think it has all these weird dream sequences because it's got this idea of like questioning your, your sense of reality and so on. So I would say as much as it is a bit of a bloated book, as much as it is a bit of a an odd one, there's a lot in there that's, you know, well worth taking a look at. So you didn't know about this book at all before I brought this topic to you. I'd never heard of it. Oh, wow. That's crazy. No. And I'd, I, and I'd seen, I'd seen the Voyager episodes probably two or three times, I'd guess. I mean, most recently in, in 2016 when, you know, I was doing the rewatch as well, but I didn't know, it didn't cross my mind that it was based on, on something else then until, until you brought it to me. And I was like, Oh, that's interesting. I'll go and check that out. So thank you, Brandon, for, you know, getting in touch and yeah, and suggesting this. And, uh, you know, it's always great to have suggestions for new topics because there are, you know, 700 and something Star Trek episodes and a lot of them have some kind of antecedent that is well worth delving into. And, you know, the more so in a way, if like me, it's something that you're totally unfamiliar with, it gives you a new in- insight, new kind of perspective on Star Trek, which is kind of what we're always going for. So Thank you for suggesting that, Brandon. Thank you for coming on the show to talk to me about it. 
before we go, do you want to just give our listeners uh, a little rundown on where they can find you elsewhere on the Trek FM network and if they want to get on touch on social media? Mm-hmm, you bet. Yeah, no, thank you so much for having me on. I've been looking forward to it all summer. We, we've been planning this like quite a while ago and like, which gave us time to read the book. Cause yes, like you say, it's a long book. You know, as I was reading this book, you know, I was thinking like I read a lot of Star Trek books because I follow along with literary treks, right? That's the show that I choose support to support through Patreon. And, you know, a, a Star Trek book, I can read a page in under a minute for most of the Star Trek books that are out there. And, you know, this book's 500 pages and it would take me about two minutes to read a page because the writing is small. There's a lot of writing on each page. So, I mean, like I would put this one novel almost probably at the length of the destiny trilogy, you know, like, you know, so it's, it's a long book. There is a lot there. I really enjoy it. I think it's great. When I'm not driving around running people over in my fury, you can find me on Twitter at Brandon Metella. Uh, you can find me here on the network with a show called Melodic Treks, which is all about the music of Star Trek. I'm also a co-host of Warp 5 with Brandy and Patrick, and that's our Star Trek Enterprise podcast. And if you like films and you like cinema, we are also doing a series of films called Movie Night, where we're actually just talking about the movies that they mention on Enterprise that they are watching during movie night. So we've done For Whom the Bell Tolls, The Wages of Fear, Frankenstein, you know, so it's a lot of fun. Any movie that they mention on the show, we're going to be covering at some point, and we're just simply talking about the movie. Over on the Fandom Podcast Network, I've got a podcast called Good Evening, an Alfred Hitchcock podcast, which I do with my friends Chris and Tom. And once a month, we cover an Alfred Hitchcock film. We're doing those chronologically. Depending on when this comes out, uh, as of this recording... Today, our second episode, Zach and I from Standard Orbit are doing a podcast called Halloween H4O, and it's an 11-episode series on the Talk Film Society covering the Halloween films because the new one's coming out right away. And then I've also launched an intermittent podcast over on the Cinematic Sound Radio Network, uh, which is called Breaking the Waves, and it's all about electronic film score. And as of now, there's only one episode. There's not going to be a lot of those. It's just like another creative outlet for me. But the first episode covers the Academy Award-winning duo of Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross. So it sounds like I'm doing a lot, but most of them are like kind of intermittent podcasts and they're not regular, regular ones. Brandon, you have more fingers in in more pies than my former co-host, Tony Black, I think. (laughs) And I I think he must have had his toes in a few pies as well at one point. But uh, that's a a lot of podcasts to be listening to, but all well worth your time. So thank you again for, for joining me today. It was a blast. Thank you very much. Well, it's been fun tearing up the tarmac with Brandon this week, but looking into the darker recesses of Tom Paris's psyche isn't the only thing we've been doing on Trek FM this week. So here's a listen to some of the other stuff you might have missed out on on the network. Previously on Trek.FM. To the journey! I love that Barkley says he's lost himself in Voyager because I have been there, man. Haven't we all, Reg? Haven't we all? It hits a little close to home. It does. I'm a little bit like Barkley in some ways. I, you know, I have just a little bit of paranoia to me. Awkward? No, a little paranoid. No, I don't think I'm awkward. No. Okay, maybe, a, <laughs> maybe a little bit. <laughs> well, you said you're like Barkley. Awkward. Give me a glass of wine and I'm fine. Okay. <laughs> Sent the hall. Excuse me. Sent the hall. The six oh two club. Well, and I think that uh, there's even, you know, a a kernel of that conversation uh, reflected in when he is on. Uh, the, the airship with his dad and it's very interesting because Indy gives you know they give the, the two versions of the story where you know you were distant you didn't hang out with me you didn't do these things I didn't have a normal dad like every other kid and then you hear uh, you know Henry Jones Sr. say I never told you to wash behind your ears I never checked up on your homework I gave you all of the freedom and independence that you wanted and if you were to ask any kid, they'd say that's what they wanted. And then you find out, to speak to the point about fact and truth, that that's not necessarily what you want. You want involvement. You want connection. You want to be together. You want to be part of your family unit. And you want it to be cohesive. I mean, you know, at a, at a baseline, that's what everybody wants. Earl Grey. And especially, like, toward the end, when it's like, Jean-Luc, 
what are you and I doing just like voyaging around the galaxy by ourselves on this ship? <laughs> like it makes perfect sense to you, but it makes no sense to me, yeah. right? Just the two of us like on this giant ship. It's well, like, when wow. it was just a small skeletal crew, you know, and she's still questioning. He's like, why do we have all of these rooms and quarters? And, and then Data just nonchalantly, well, we have... You know, we need uh, evacuation and we take diplomats around. Yeah. And like he's listing it like, well, duh, this is why we have it. And Picard's like, that'll be enough data. Warp five. Well, you remember it was like when it was 42. You weren't very reasonable then, were you? Uh, no, I was not. Exactly. I was absolutely not. I was yelling at a tree in my backyard. It was <laughs> not a pretty sight. All I know is... All I know- Big Men in Heat is not a good idea. Oh, that sounds like a great band. (laughs) (laughs) And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. Check out all these shows and join the conversation about your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you're an Apple user, be sure to hit the subscribe button in Apple Podcasts on iPhone, iPad or Apple TV or the desktop iTunes app to get the latest episodes as soon as they are published. And please leave us a star rating and a written review. If you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Google Play Music, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, in most third-party apps, and you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website or grab the RSS link. We'd love to hear your thoughts on today's show, and there are many ways for you to do that. The best place is to join the larger conversation on the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type in Babel... B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook, and it should come right up. If you'd like to send us an email, you can use the form on our website at trek.fm slash contact. Choose to send to a show and select Primitive Culture. That'll come right to us. You can also find the network on Twitter at trek.fm and on Facebook at facebook.com slash trek.fm. Primitive Culture is brought to you by Duncan Barrett and Clara Cook. You can find Duncan Barrett on Twitter at Barrett's Books. You can find Clara on Twitter at Clara Jean MC. If you'd like to help us keep all our shows coming to you each week, you can become a patron of the network on Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash trekfm. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm to get all the details. Perks include early access to episodes, exclusive content, producer credits, and more, available through our special patrons website, Patron Zone. It requires a great deal of money to produce, host, and distribute these shows each month. We really appreciate any support you can give us and hope you'll join the team. Again, you'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. We'd like to take this opportunity to thank our associate producers here at Primitive Culture, Tony Black and Amy Nelson. Tony was one of the founders of this show and we still keep him in the loop about what we're doing. You can find him on Twitter at at AJBlackWriter and online hosting about a dozen other podcasts on everything from the X-Files to classic cinema. Amy is the host of two shows on the Trek FM network, Earl Grey and The Edge, and you can find her online on Twitter at at Miss Amy Nelson. You're blended all right.